Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once, it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Coming up on Chopper's Politics. I'm delighted that both the Prime Minister and the Chancellor admire Nigel Lawson. And I'd have thought the most important thing to admire was tax simplification, tax rate reduction, increasing the revenues as a result. What's not to like unless you're a, a very bitter and twisted socialist? <laughs> Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, the Associate Editor for Politics at the Daily Telegraph. And welcome to Chopper's Politics Podcast, live from the Red Lion Pub in the heart of Westminster. It's been a week of reflection, with the death of Nigel Lawson, Lord Lawson of Blaby, reminding Tories of a time when the government was bold about tax cuts. And today's 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, which brought peace to Northern Ireland. So this week on Chopper's Politics Podcast, we'll be discussing both of those things. Lawson's legacy with Sir John Redwood, a former head of Margaret Thatcher's policy unit in 10 Downing Street and the Belfast Agreement with my colleague Philip Johnston, who covered the intricacies of that deal for The Telegraph all those years ago. And later, we'll be talking to one of Britain's greatest Olympians, Sir Steve Redgrave, who won five, yes, five, consecutive gold medals at five Olympic Games from 1984 to 2000. But first, the death of Nigel Lawson triggered much soul-searching in the Tory party about what is the point of the modern-day Conservatives. With me, and with his ideas on what the party can learn from Lord Lawson, is Sir John Redwood. And we had some trouble connecting with Sir John Redwood, so I caught up with him on the phone. Sir John Redwood, welcome to Chopper's Politics Podcast. Great to have you on. Well, hello to all your listeners. Thanks for coming on. Now, you were elected MP for Wokingham in 1987 after a period running Margaret Thatcher's policy unit. So you were there, weren't you, in the Commons Chamber for the, uh, the extraordinary budget from Nigel Lawson in 1988, the crowning achievement, arguably, of the Thatcherite years in terms of tax and spend. What was it like and what happened? Well, it was extremely encouraging because we, we'd already demonstrated by the government's actions in previous years uh, that if you had the courage to cut the rates of tax on incomes for both people and businesses, you grew the economy faster and you grew the revenue. Uh, after all, they'd already cut income tax top rate from 83% to 60% and had started to bring down the uh, basic rate as well. And the revenue results were extremely positive. I, of course, have been um, very much involved because I was not only the head of the policy unit in the middle years, but I was also economic advisor to the Prime Minister. Alan Walters had taken up a job somewhere else, and we decided to put the two jobs together. And I was then the person who helped the Prime Minister over general economic policy, taxation, budgets, and so forth. 
But Lawson did cut, he cut the top rate from 60p to 40p. Was there a risk, though, it could fuel inflation? Because by then you'd got inflation under control in the 80s. But, of course, inflation ran out of control, didn't it, in the early 90s? And was Lawson to blame for that? The good news was that the further cuts in tax rates continued the trend of increasing the amount of money raised. Mm. And I remember being able to draft some suggestions for a prime ministerial speech where she was able to say, following the tax reductions uh, in the rates, the people on higher earnings were paying more in cash terms, they were paying more in real terms, and they were paying a bigger proportion of total taxation. Because what, of course, happened was a lot of rich people came into Britain to invest, to buy homes, to create businesses and jobs. Uh, And British people already here uh, were willing to venture their money more, take more risks and make more money as a result. Unfortunately, Nigel Lawson, faultless though he was on taxation matters uh, and on help with privatization, did change his mind over how to control inflation. He, after all, had been the architect of the financial strategy and controls uh, in the early 1980s. And he had rightly decided on controls over the amount that the state borrowed and controls over the amount of money and credit that was created through the Bank of England's policies and the commercial banks. But once he was Chancellor, the Treasury and the Bank of England persuaded him that instead of that domestic framework, which the Prime Minister was very happy with and was working very well, he should change policy to join the European exchange rate mechanism and to make the guiding stone of policy trying to keep the pound in line with the Deutschmark. I mean, I wrote advice on why this would be very destabilizing and why it would lead to boom or bust. Indeed, it in due course led to both. We had a boom followed by a bust because, of course, the German economy wasn't the same as the British economy and, and its needs in terms of interest rates yes, of and course. credit control were rather different. So I think that was a great pity that Nigel made that mistake in an otherwise magnificent performance as yes. Chancellor of the Exchequer. But of course, in subsequent years, he became a Brexiteer. So he clearly then (laughs) realized that following a a European economic plan hadn't worked very well. So the boom and bust you described there wasn't driven then by by cutting the taxes. It was more shadowing the Deutschmark. Oh, absolutely. Yes, because um, what you had to do was in the early days when he was shadowing the Deutschmark without the prime minister's permission, the pound wanted to go up. And so the remedy for that was to literally print pounds and sell pounds across the exchanges to try and keep the value of the pound down. And that got into the banking system and you then had a money and credit explosion. And then when when things went wrong, uh, after we'd gone formally into the European exchange rate mechanism and the world markets were losing confidence once we were in the RM, you had to do the reverse process. So what you had to do was you literally had to destroy money. You had to reverse the process and buy up foreign currencies. And as a result, you intensified the downturn and and led to a very nasty recession. So it was a deeply destabilizing policy, which I think completely changed the nature of politics over those 20 years. But the the core point about Lawson about tax cutting is is used, isn't it, by modern day conservatives to to justify, and yourself included in that, to justify cutting taxes now. Is that lesson being picked up properly, you think, by the leadership in the Tory party today? Well, no, I mean, I wish they would. I mean, mm. I'm delighted that both the Prime Minister and the Chancellor admire Nigel Lawson, and there was a lot to admire, as we've been discussing. And I'd have thought the most important thing to admire was tax simplification, tax rate reduction, increasing the revenues as a result. What's not to like, unless you're a, 
a very bitter and twisted socialist. <laughs> uh, and so I, I would urge them to think again about their hero and realize that Nigel Lawson was magnificent over all this, and, and he proved it beyond doubt. And then if they don't believe him and what we saw in the 1980s, they should look at what's happening in the Republic of Ireland, where mm. slashing the corporate tax rate uh, has given Ireland a huge surge of investment and highly paid jobs, which they benefit from greatly. Jeremy Hunt has got Nigel Lawson's picture on his wall behind his desk in number 11 Downing Street. I guess, well, I know Hunt told us, he may have told you privately, told us on this podcast in January that he wants to cut taxes. He's got to get inflation under control first. And isn't that what Lawson did with that medium term plan you discussed? Well, I think it's obviously important to have inflation under control, but I've got good news for Jeremy. I think the very tough actions the Bank of England have taken over the last year to correct their errors of previous years will do the job. I think inflation will come down. The bank forecasts it will. The Treasury forecasts it will. They're not always wrong in their forecasts. (laughs) And I think these forecasts are broadly in the right direction. So don't overdo it and do understand that you need some lower tax rates and some pro-growth policies in addition to the ones already announced to offset what will otherwise be a nasty slowdown of the economy. What what, what would you do? You mentioned corporation tax there. You wouldn't have pushed it up to 25% from from 19%. But would you you have done quasi-Gautang's abolition of the top rate, which would cost low billions to Treasury, but it would send out a signal about growth and and low tax and, and the economy here? It wasn't something I had proposed or campaigned for. I have other tax priorities before that. I think what we need is to build the capacity of the economy. We're not investing enough and we don't have enough businesses. And so I I have asked them to change the IR35 self-employment regime because I think the latest regime is far too tough and it's putting people off being self-employed or converting people from self-employed into employed status when they could otherwise go on and build a multi-client or or multi-jobs business. And I'd like to see the VAT threshold for smaller business increase dramatically. Now we're no longer under EU controls over the level of the VAT threshold. uh, Because I hear from colleagues around the country, there are quite a lot of small businesses that don't want to go over 85,000 to turnover. Mm. Uh, And so they literally close the guest house for a couple of months or they stop producing things or they say, no, they can't do any more plumbing. That's patently crazy to turn down work to try and keep under a certain turnover for the year. It's almost like Soviet planning there of a business, isn't it? Yes, I mean, it's quite wrong. It's uh, it's turning people off. And of course, it also means that some people who who shouldn't and should know better attempted to do a few things on the side for cash, where, of course, the Treasury gets no direct tax out of it at all. It would be much better to um, allow those things to be done free of VAT, and then you'd capture all the other taxes you impose. You know, you could be talking about a Labour government, not a Conservative government, in what you're describing there. Why do you think this isn't quite understood by the top table in government? Well, I don't know why they won't back what makes so much sense. And again, I would use your podcast to repeat the message. They are right to admire Nigel Lawson on tax and growth and private enterprise and private investment. That was what got Britain moving in the 1980s after a dreadful period in the 1970s when we fell very far behind. And so please think again. They are obviously being told by Treasury advisors and others that they will lose revenue if they cut rates or raise thresholds. But all the evidence from Britain in the past and from places like Ireland in the present is that if you're bold, you gain revenue because you grow faster and people 
take more risks, do more work, mm. and become more prosperous. Surely that's what it's all for. I guess critics might say boldness, you know, has, has damaged the Tory party's reputation of economic competency after the last September and the growth statement, which was put right, arguably, by Jeremy Hunt in November. Well, I don't agree with that analysis. Okay. Uh, did Kwasi go further in his package than I would have done? Yes, yes, he did. But I think the main reason the, the bond markets, the price of government borrowing moved in the way they did uh, was because the Bank of England wanted them to. Because if you remember, the, the bond market was falling well before the statement mm. that Kwasi Kwarteng made because yes. the Bank of England came out and said it wanted higher interest rates. It hadn't done enough to control inflation. And just to make sure it, it got those bond prices down and therefore the longer term interest rates up, it announced an enormous program of selling those bonds, the bonds it had meticulously bought up at very high prices in previous years. So I think you, you do need to understand that the main force disrupting the bond market was the big switch of the Bank of England from being a heavy bond buyer to being a very large bond seller. That's right. So there's, there's, there's wider forces at, at play, which I think the Trust has said that weren't properly explained to her when, when she came out with, it, with that budget. I mean, do you think the Tory party has been, or well, the kind of trust side uh, wing of it has been unfairly tarnished or, or damaged by, by what happened last September? Well, I hope we, we're all going to pull together and mm. we accept the new Prime Minister's leadership and we wish him every success. But those of us who supported Liz Truss and wanted a pro-growth budget, of course, hope that all members of the party will refrain from criticising one particular individual for difficulties that we've been living through and at least uh, do us the credit of understanding that there were quite a few big forces disrupting the markets last autumn yeah. and it wasn't just the Kwarteng statement. And then looking at the election next year this will be the, a key defining difference won't it between the two main parties Labour and Tories on the issues, issues of tax we're looking at possible wealth taxes capital gains tax increases from the Labour Party for example. Well yes I, mean, I trust it will be a big divide because clearly I don't want my party the Conservative Party recommending higher taxes and the sooner we get on with a a proper lower tax rate agenda, the better. Of course, it's a, it's a bit of mis-selling saying that we want lower taxes overall. We, we actually want increased tax revenues overall. Yes. The argument is about how you get the increased tax revenues to pay for the better schools and hospitals. And I'm absolutely sure from all the evidence, historical and geographical, that the lower rates, particularly on individual incomes and on business incomes, is the way to grow faster, make us more prosperous and have more tax revenue. And just going back to Lord Lawson, Nigel Lawson, how do you think history might remember him, John Redwood? Well, I think history will be very kind to Nigel Lawson and deservedly so. I think he was one of the great figures of the post-war era, a very important and impressive chancellor who made many big moves, which the country benefited from. And as we are still talking about his lessons today, it shows what an important figure he was. Well, John Redwood, formerly in Margaret Thatcher's policy unit, who holds the Thatcherite flame since then for many. Thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics Podcast. Thank you. Well, thank you for inviting me. And, and I hope your audience agrees with a lot of that and joins me <laughs> in my campaign for lower tax rates. We'll get them to email in. Thank you, sir. All the best to you. Thank you. Sir John Redwood there. Now, US President Joe Biden is due in Belfast next week to mark the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, which has kept the peace in Northern Ireland since 1998. With me now to discuss that and why it's been so successful is Philip Johnston, our associate editor. Philip Johnston, welcome to Chopper's Politics Podcast. Great to have you on. 
Thank you, Christopher. You've written an excellent piece this week in The Telegraph about your memories of Lord Lawson's seismic budget in 1988 when you were a a reporter, a correspondent for The Telegraph, sitting in the press gallery. Yes. What happened in that budget? Well, you should remember, of course, nowadays we know everything that's going to be in the budget because it's leaked weeks and weeks in advance. But in those days, there was something called uh, budget purda and the chances of the Exchequer used to go into hiding for about three months. And nobody knew what was happening. In fact, any leaks were regarded with potential resigning matters, possibly. And the resigning matters, a couple of chances of the Exchequer over the years have resigned over it. Um, So we didn't really know what was coming, though the manifesto for the Conservative campaign the previous year in 1987, when Thatcher won a second big majority, did promise reductions in personal taxation. Mm. And on the eve of the 88 budget, there were certainly speculation that something um, dramatic might happen. And what did he do then? Well, he cut tax, which, let's face it, had remained quite high throughout the Thatcher period up until 88, which is eight years of government. Um, The top rate of tax was 60p then. So 60p to 40p, wasn't it? Lawson cut it 60p to 40p, and that triggered... A reaction in the House of Commons, which I have never seen before or since in a budget. The young Alex Salmond, or SNP MP, who'd only got in the previous year, decided to start shouting down the budget, whereupon um, the Deputy Speaker always uh, invigilates yeah, for the a ways and means speaker. The ways and means speaker named him, which is to essentially tell him to leave the chamber. And at that point, the left, Labour left, Jeremy Corbyn and a few others, I remember, demanded a vote on whether he should be thrown out. So that delayed it for 15 minutes. He was thrown out. Um, And I think that was for the early announcement. When they got to the 60p to 40p announcement, then Dave Nellis, who was a renowned uh, Labour trot, um, started fulminating. And they had to suspend the proceedings again. So this turned into a very long uh, budget, like two hours or so. But this was... The culmination of the Thatcher years, this was the key moment at which all the terrible pain of the recession, three million unemployed and all the ghastly things that had happened before in order to rectify the mess that Labour had left in 79 came to fruition. And it was intended to be so because Lawson had fallen out quite badly with Thatcher. That wasn't particularly well known at the time, but over exchange rate policy and monetary policy. And the two of them were at, at odds over how to um, control inflation. And so he thought this might be his last budget. And in fact, if you read Charles Moore's superb uh, book on uh, the last Thatcher years, he um, confided to Charles, he told the Queen he thought it might be the last budget. So this was to be the apogee and, of Thatcher. And by then he'd controlled inflation, that's the key point. So he got that sorted out, the inflation issue, and then went to the... Well, the key, what they sorted out were the public finances, and for the, the person who'd really done that was Geoffrey Howe. And inflation had come down quite dramatically from... At the very early years of Thatcher, the very first year, inherited from Labour, it must be said, of about 25% to, you know, manageable low single figures. But of course, Lawson subsequently is blamed because of the tax cuts fueling a boom for the return of inflation about a year or so later. And then, of course, high interest rates to control it. And then Thatcher saying this is largely your fault. He then resigned because she was being advised in Number 10 Downing Street by a chap called Sir Alan Walters, our independent economics advisor, a monetarist, 
that uh, Lawson's policy of shadowing the Deutschmark in order to keep inflation down was not going to work. And um, he said, well, if I can't run my own policy, I'm Off going. he went. But, but the shock of it sounds, I mean, I was in a press gallery watching the quasi Guatang growth statement last September when he announced the axing of the 45p tax rate, much smaller. And they, again, you, you describe there this kind of, such a surprise, no real response from the Tories because they weren't ready for it. But equally, there was no response last September. No one was ready for what they did last September. So it was like a, in a smaller way, akin to what you experienced. Uh, right now, of course, Lord, Lord uh, Lawson, who died this week, his photograph is above Jeremy Hunt's desk. I mean, he stands for something, doesn't he, for the yes, Tory party? he's an iconic figure. I mean, he, every single Tory chancellor cites Nigel Lawson as their hero, even if they don't follow his policy. In what, being brave or tax-cutting in, or both? In tax-cutting, essentially, and the, um, and the understanding that without growth, you don't have anything, any public services... Which, of course, is what Kwartang and Trust were proposing to do, but they were proposing to do it by borrowing the money in order to to bring down taxes rather than getting the public finances in a proper state. And, of course, Nigel Lawson, in an article for this newspaper, one of the last ones he did, actually supported Sunak rather than Trust on this. So if they are going to worship at the feet of a, of a great chancellor, then I suppose they need to take on board what he thought at the end. Of course, 1988 was your first year working for Telegraph and you joined our lobby team. But about a decade later, you were there to see the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. Or you, you covered that, didn't you? And that, that's been marked this weekend, 25 years. Joe Biden, the US president, is in Belfast soon. Do you see the Good Friday Agreement as being a Tory victory for, for, for Peace in Ireland or a Labour one? Well, a lot of the work was done by Conservatives from um, very end of Thatcher's premiership through all of majors, the groundwork was laid. I covered almost the entirety of the peace process from when it began in the very end of Thatcher's premiership with a speech by Peter Brook, who was the Secretary of State, and then was taken on by John Major. And John Major, I think, um, deserves a lot of credit for what uh, transpired. And to be fair, has been given that by Blair and Jonathan Powell, who um, worked on this. In the end, of course, the IRA in the like, mid-90s, after the ceasefire broke in 1996, then waited for a Labour government. Everybody knew there was going to be a change of government. John Major by then was very weak politically, um, didn't even have a majority in the House of Commons. So the wait was, let's get a Labour government and see what can be done. And I think, um, as Blair and, and others have said, until the deal was signed, nobody really thought that it was going to go ahead. Did you think it would last this long? then? Um, I mean, in terms of keeping the peace and all that, keeping the broadly peace, has exactly. done. Exactly. And I think that that was its intent. People will argue and do to this day about the governance of the province, which of course at the moment is um, suspended because the DUP has walked out, just as Sinn Féin walked out a few years ago. So the, the, the governmental institutions have not worked as well as they should do, for obviously. I mean, for many years, it just hasn't functioned properly. But the key intent of the Good Friday Agreement was peace and stability, and by and large, that has held even if below the surface. You know, you don't have to scratch very far to get community tensions coming through. I mean, many people in this country may not be aware, but there are still 20 miles of walls and fences separating the communities in Belfast, with gates locked in the evening, and visitors to Belfast, which is now a great, vibrant, my hometown indeed, vibrant city, are flabbergasted to find that <laughs> these gates still exist, these walls are still there. And it succeeded by, by fudging a lot of areas, didn't it? It, it? Basically, there was no winner 
in the no, well, the, you know, the, well, everybody had to move a bit or, or a lot, really. I mean, the unionists got a guarantee in in a treaty that um, that the status of Northern Ireland will remain British until such time as the people in a border poll say they don't want it to be anymore. They also got the Irish to agree to remove their uh, territorial claim on the North, Articles Two and Three of the Constitution. Sinn Fein got into government. And now, of course, are the biggest party in both the north and the south of Ireland. So they can claim to have got something. They're still a long way from whatever they may say about getting to a, a united Ireland. Are they? Yes. That, that'll, that'll be. I mean, what you need to do is get the institutions back up and running. And I suspect the DUP will, later this year, go back into this government. They won't do that well in the local elections that are coming up. They're being um, challenged by the Alliance Party very strongly indeed. And, of course, they got massively defeated in the House of Commons recently over the um, framework agreement by a majority of nearly 500. And that has damaged them, I think, in a way that where do they go from here, really? So um, I wouldn't be surprised if the DUP want to go back in later while understanding their continued worries about the Did way... Do you think the Winter Framework has damaged the Union? There's lots of concerns emerging right now about the influence of the European Union in Northern Ireland, the sovereignty over some parts of it. I know there's many this, this, this storm won't break, but the DUP think it can't really be applied properly. Well, the DUP don't wish to see the European Union have any say in Northern Ireland at all. I understand that. Just like they didn't want the um, Irish government to have any say in 1985. However... The reality is, after Brexit, that the border between the EU and the United Kingdom is in Ireland. So the, either you have a hard border, which nobody seems to accept. I mean, we, there were ways in which that could have been done. We all know with um, with special um, technical technical uh, changes. Cameras but, and rest. Exactly, but uh, that wasn't done. So, therefore, if Northern Ireland is to remain in the in the single market. And let's face it, you know, there are a lot of businesses in Northern Ireland who are getting the best of both worlds. Obviously, there's a poll only uh, this week, I think, saying that two-thirds of businesses actually like the framework agreement and think that um, they are doing quite well out of being in the single market and with trading with the United Kingdom. So it's smoothing those things out. If they're after no involvement whatsoever for the European Court, I don't think they're going to get that because of the single market element of this. Some friends of mine in Northern Ireland said they could have played this differently. They could have seen it, Sunak, as a victory for themselves. A victory. Who's they, they being the... The DUP. They could have said this was the result of standing firm, of even of Boris's bill to supply a lot of the protocol, most of the protocol, um, and then gone back into government that way. But they decided that they, they wished to oppose it. At some point, probably in the autumn, they're going to have to make a decision as to whether to uh, get the institutions back and running again. Well, Philip Johnson, thank you for that, that, that flashback, those two major events and the anniversaries that come up uh, this year um, in, in Northern Ireland and, and with, uh, with Lord Lawson and that seismic budget in 1988. Thank you for joining us this week thank on Chopper's Politics Podcast. Thank you. Philip Johnston there. Now, do stay with us, listeners. Coming up, I'll be speaking to Olympic legend Sir Steve Redgrave about why men need to talk more about how they're feeling. Right after this. As a Choppers Politics listener, we're offering you three months of Telegraph puzzles for just £1. Tackle our brilliant brain teasers, including word and number games, for every level of ability. 
all on our dedicated puzzles website and brand new app. Visit telegraph.co.uk slash puzzles dash chopper today. Now, Sir Steve Redgrave is one of the UK's most decorated athletes who went on to help deliver the 2012 London Olympic Games. But he's also struggled with depression. Now he's launched a campaign encouraging men to check their testosterone levels if they're feeling low. So, Steve Redgrave, welcome to Chopper's Politics Podcast in the Red Lion Pub. It's good to be here. <laughs> good to be here. Yeah. Are you a big pub person? I um, bet you are. You live out in I, on I, the Thames. Are you in, in I live Berkshire? in Marlow in Buckinghamshire. Buckinghamshire. Um, when I was a kid, for a small town, we had over 32 pubs yes. in the town centre in walking distance. There's not quite so many there now, no. but uh, most of them are still there. Yeah, yeah. And my underage drinking pub is now the hat. Well, it's still the Hand and Flowers, <laughs> um, which uh, Tom Carriage has, has taken over. It's his restaurant there. Now. Okay. We're in a pub where people talk and men chat over pints of beer, but it is early in the morning, so we're having a coffee. Do you think men need to talk more about their feelings, maybe if they're feeling sad or depressed and the rest of it? Yeah, I think males as a whole, we, we tend to take Mickey out of each other than, than actually have any meaningful conversations. Mm. And I think that uh, society has opened up so much in the last couple of decades. But still, men don't want to talk about, certainly mental health, Mm -hmm. certainly about problems they may have, uh, where females on the other uh, side uh, always seem to be chatting, (laughs) uh, maybe a little bit too much at at times. Uh, But yeah, I think as as men that we need to... uh, Loosen up and lighten up yeah, and talk, yeah. talk a little bit more. We try to find solutions, don't we, to things. If my wife talks to me, I'm like, I'll try and give her a solution and then do something else. But in fact, all she wants to do is talk about stuff. We, we like to find solutions for other things, not for our own, uh, yes. Our own issues. Yes. We don't, we don't talk about them at all. Yes. Now, if I may, uh, talking about your, your situation, you did find yourself getting a, a bit up and down post uh, your amazing gold medal achievements up until the 2000 Sydney Olympics. What were your symptoms? What were you experiencing? Uh, I've been a diabetic for nearly 25 years now. I came down as a diabetic uh, uh, three years before my last Olympics in Sydney. I had a grandfather that had type 2 diabetes in his his late 60s, early 70s, and didn't really, he sort of gave up the the will to live in some ways, but I was very, very young. So I knew that there was a sort of a, a trace of diabetes in the family line. But never thought that I would come down with it and certainly never thought that I would come down with it uh, mm. while being an athlete is type 2 diabetics that uh, one, they're put onto a diabetic diet and two, they're asked to uh, exercise a little bit more. Um, I think <laughs> more than you time, are. <laughs> I was probably doing, well, eating wise, it was sort of six to 7,000 calories per day. <laughs> Um, so that uh, you would have thought of cutting down from that would have been a good thing. So that was diabetes, and, that, and then testosterone came into it too, which is more as a latter thing, was it? The, testosterone's the, the testosterone. recent the recent side of it in, in in some ways is that I suppose that I started to get a little bit sort of depressed. It's not uncommon with elite athletes when retiring and and sort of finding their next step of what direction that they they go in because they were so focused in in one area. Mm. Then it's quite difficult reevaluating that. For me, on my retirement, within a week, I was asked down to London. The chief executive and the chairman of of uh, the British Olympic Association took me out for a coffee 
mid-morning and saying we're thinking about bidding for the Olympics. In would 2012. You, would you like to be involved? And uh, yeah. I, of course I said I, I would be and I was the fourth person to be involved in that bid process. So my Olympic dream carried on. Mm -hmm. This was end of 2000, beginning of 2001. Mm -hmm. And of course that uh, I, I was very motivated of being there. Very different of trying to be involved in bringing the games to the country than, mm -hmm. than, than actually doing it yourself and I was given the role of trying to uh, convince Ken Livingstone uh, as the mayor of London and uh, the government of Tony Blair and, and the, the Labour government to come on board to, to back it. The bid is from the British Olympic Association but without the, uh, yeah. the backing of, of the government and uh, of the mayor and, and the city it's definitely not going to happen. I thought the government would be very tough. It took about 18 months to get them on board, but I thought Ken was going to be uh, mm. impossible. Yeah. And uh, I had a meeting with him, went to the town hall, sat down at his, his desk, and he looked up at me and he said, you think I'm going to say that uh, we're not interested in this? And he was the complete opposite. <laughs> he said that of, I've seen what the Olympics did to Barcelona in yeah, 92, yeah. and that they revamped the city completely and become now the sort of the romantic, uh, one of the romantic venues uh, within Europe. And that was all on the back of, of the bid. And he says, I'm fully behind. And that's it. what happened in, in the Docklands, isn't it? Yeah. That's what you, what you promised happened. So it was, it was amazing. Ken was, was brilliant right the yeah, way yeah. through. Uh, once he believes that uh, a direction that uh, to, to go in, even though I don't totally uh, believe his politics, but his passion and his heart was, was incredible. Yeah, yeah. And without him, we wouldn't have, have got, it's off, off forgotten because it became a Boris Johnson thing, no. didn't it? Because he yeah. became latterly. Well, the, the, he, the mayor. he came in literally two or three weeks before we won the, the That's Boris Johnson in, in yeah. Sing, Singapore, and uh, so really sort of came on on the back of it in, in real. So that was a ten. And to took took the, the the glamour side of yes. of it, which that's that's uh, life. That, that's, that, life. That's, and, and that's Boris. And that's, <laughs> and that's Boris. That's politics. That was your sort of ten, twelve year project, and then you, then the, the, in the last decade, of course, you're doing some other things, weren't you? So of uh, going back to the sort of depression in some ways is yeah. that that. The Olympic dream carried on, and it wasn't until the cauldron went out at uh, in 2012 of the the Paralympics. Mm. I wasn't at the venue that evening, but watching it on TV, and then I sort of started asking myself a question and thinking, well, what are you going to do now? Mm. And so it was sort of almost delayed my sort of emotional release from the Olympics until almost 12 years after uh, competing myself yes and that's when I sort of started noticing that I was struggling a little bit more mentally yes. but of course we don't do anything about it we as men we we battle on and and uh, jokes about uh, of uh, 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 carry on and it, it wasn't until recently I'm now 61 being a bit tired a little bit lethargic not really having a, a lot of energy you sort of start putting that down to age and just sort of it's just that the aging process is that uh, I'm in a in a different frame of uh, of life than when where I was before so um it wasn't until literally a few months ago that a, a close friend said to me and I said well what about your testosterone levels now of course being an athlete testosterone is always looked as uh, as basically being possibly drug cheating or mm. having uh, levels too high it's something that we never monitored 
I would have hundreds and hundreds, if not going into the thousands of anti-doping tests over the years of being an athlete. But you never get any of the results back unless you have a positive test. Mm. And of course, I've never had a positive test. Yeah. So I must have always been within the, uh, uh, the area of that. And I thought it was a little bit odd, but this this friend suggested that uh, I got checked out. So sort of signed up and and was sent a a sample to take. You can take your own blood, which for a diabetic, it sounds gruesome, but for a diabetic, it's pretty pretty straightforward. You can do a a finger prick and and, uh, give the sample from, from that. And you can do it that way. I chose to have a nurse come around to my home and, 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 and took a, a full blood sample. And then coming back from that, showing that my testosterone levels were, were relatively low. For a man of your age? For a man of my age, the, the year on year that your testosterone levels do drop. But uh, I'm on the lower side of the, the, the average span that you're, you're supposed to have. And uh, sort of then I had a consultation with the doctor online through Zoom. And again, as a, as a bloke, do I go to my GP very often? No. Trying to get an appointment is always very yeah. difficult. And, and uh, the practice where, where I'm a part of and have been all my life is when I was a kid that you knew your GP. Yeah. It was almost a family, a family friend. Mm. It just happened that the, the, the family... Uh, doctor road as well so I knew the family as well their uncle was our first GP but now every time I go I see somebody different mm. each time so uh, uh, it's that, hard, hard to, to make, have that conversation you may yeah want to have even though that. the notes are brilliant and and you go through the process but you've got to go through all the all whole routine again. and again the oh, Am I that bad that I need to do anything? So you, so you got you low testosterone, going. and that, that's led you think to your the moods, the moods uh, yeah. swing. Well, up and down. that's what I, sort of uh, uh, being told, and it makes sense in in some ways. But you just sort of, as I said before, you sort of treat it as sort of the aging process, yeah. And thinking, well, yeah, I'm getting old. Isn't that supposed to happen? And uh, now I'm being advised that it's not. So uh, uh, literally a few weeks ago, I, I was put on to uh, boost my testosterone it's very early days at the moment but i've certainly seen an improvement in my mental health yeah i would like to see a little bit more uh improvement of energy wise and yeah. and uh, but um I, I was on antidepressants which i'm not now uh, even if i'm holding a, a level platform that's mm. got to be and it's hard coming off them isn't it it's hard coming off totally totally it really um, is hard I, think. The, I, I wasn't overly keen to go on them in the first place no but uh, hoping that it would uh, be sort of a, a kickstart and it didn't it didn't really work for me uh, and so now i've had two blood tests and uh, a, a number of consultancies mm. is that uh, that's that's sort of working for me so i i think i'm heading in the right direction yes and excited about the being in my 60s may not be the the end of my exactly. active life but you've got this let's talk testosterone campaign with ted's health that's you just launched that recently haven't you yes ted's health are taking the, the blood tests mm. and relating from that it may not mean that you've got a testosterone problem actually another friend that has gone through the process actually uh, uh, found out that uh, he had another major uh, health condition that was picked up from the blood test mm. so and it's worth doing on the mm. right tr- treatment from from a cancer point of view and so it's worth knowing from that way and it's nice knowing that you don't have a problem or if you've got a problem that something can be done about yeah. it and so I would advise certainly men of certain age get your blood tested yeah uh, always good to to speak to your GP as a first stop 
but I'm learning more about testosterone than I've ever done before. We as diabetics, we're more prone than, than most of the population, but uh, your life could be uh, enhanced by quite a lot, a, yeah. a, a huge amount. One way of ruling things out, but the other of of, of getting you on the right treatment. And right now, you're, are you being monitored? You got a uh, the, what that little bleep, that, that little bleep uh... there on a monitored pump. Yeah. So that's my uh, diabetes. The diabetes. So, right. um, uh, again, the, nowadays it's changed so much in, in, in recent years. Trying to explain. So it's just a, uh, a little little device that. Uh, it's got, the size it, of a small mobile got, phone. It's got the insulin uh, in, mm. a, in a capsule in yeah. there. So I'm drip fed a small amount of insulin all the time. Gosh. Going from injecting, which I, I had to start with because this technology wasn't really around when I first became a diabetic, and uh, that you have a uh, a constant uh, readout. So now mm. I'm I'm showing you yeah. of what my blood sugar level, which 13. is 13.5, which is slightly on the high side. Yes, uh, but you can see the graph of where it's come from um, yeah. overnight, overnight, which is was in the right reams and breakfast. It's gone up. Travelling yeah. down here this morning, uh, a few cups of coffee yeah. uh, has pushed it up, and and now it's coming back into its range. So where your body of being a non-diabetic, yeah. and people used to, when I was an athlete and I was injecting with the pen system with the syringe and the pen, is that I used to have to test my blood about ten times a day, and people were saying, "Why are you testing your, <laughs> your your blood ten times a day?" Uh, for an athlete, I needed to know, especially with the training that I was yes. doing, because if you got insulin in your system and you train endurance weight, your blood sugar levels will plummet. Yes. And that's where uh, issues can be of, of glycemic comas and, and things like that. This is a, a political podcast. Is there anything you want more from the government on this? Any more awareness campaigns or are they doing all they can or they're getting uh, I think the, out there? I think the government is, is pretty good with diabetics in some ways. We get free prescriptions and I don't know how, that, how long that's going to last, but that, that's an important part of it. It's, not, it, it, it's partly to do with when we were using needles and it, of making sure that you weren't using needles from an expense point of view of, of using them multiple times. Uh, they're all disposable and well looked after, and that is part of it. But as I said before, the complications, we need to find this missing million, what they talk about. Yeah. It's over a million now because the, the, the complications that they'll have will put more uh, stress on the national health. That's the missing million so people that's have the, it. That will have diabetes and at some sort it. of level that don't know it. And it will be the complications that find yeah, from yeah, it. Yeah. The complications will cost us a country so much more than finding them early enough and yeah. get them on the right treatment and, and a, a, a better uh, a and, lifestyle. And, and, and men's mental health, I mean, both the mental health minister and, and the shadow mental health ministers are women. Should there be a men's health minister it seemed to be a kind of space where where women are stronger than men as you said earlier. That's, that's a very good question uh probably yes but but somebody that is able to be uh, respected by uh, the nation somebody that may have had issues themselves that that can be related to none of us like to be preached at no. even though that we might think it's better for for us if we did something about it but we we need to be more aware especially of, of mental health amongst um, men particularly uh, a, 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 a men and women uh to to a degree but probably more on on the men's side mm. now i'm pretty in tune with my body being an athlete for 25 years uh it took me nine years of doing anything after the 2012 olympics 
and if it's taking me nine years to do something about it and I'm reasonably in tune with my body yeah. uh, what does the general public do from that quite right the, and that's where the government has to be more part of but yeah. uh, it's finance it's, it's cost and right now you're looking for a new challenge are you uh, new challenge my wife tells me that I need to get a proper job um, at <laughs> 61 I, I think it's probably a little bit too late but now I'm, I'm looking around to see what's well, perhaps what you I you become a next. mental health champion for the government we'll wait <laughs> and see well listen Steve Redgrave Sir Steve Redgrave thank you for coming to the pub on an early Thursday morning thank you for joining us on the podcast and the best of luck in your, your next steps thank you pleasure thank you so Steve Redgrave there and that's all for this week's Easter edition of Chopper's Politics. Thanks to my guest this week, Sir John Redwood, Philip Johnston, and of course, Sir Steve Redgrave there. Thank you to my producers, Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and to Annabelle Holland for her research help. And most importantly of all, thank you to you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find this show. And for more Chopper in your life, why not sign up to my daily Chopper's Politics newsletter? It delivers all of the latest Westminster news and gossip into your email inbox every weekday. The link for that will be in the show notes to this episode. And don't forget to sign up to my weekly Peterborough Diary Gossip column out on Fridays at 7pm online or in Saturday's copy of The Daily Telegraph. And as ever, please do buy a copy of The Daily Telegraph if you can. For now, though, happy Easter. Next week, my colleague, Dia Chakrabarti, will take you through the week's events while I have a week off. Until next time, though, cheerio!